Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing this song for the dreaming of the world That we may dream as one With every voice, with every song We will move this world along Today for Spirit in Action we're going to be looking at the particular struggles of black girls in our schools and the ways that their role has been criminalized as we talk with Monique Morris about her new book, push out. But first we're going to talk to our friend and regular contributor Myron Buckles as he again shares on this topic for history and our best future. You know, Myron, for today's Spirit in Action program, I'm going to be interviewing a woman who's talking about black girls and their problems with education. And her belief is that education is the best insulator against so many of the horrible things that happen. But we've criminalized a lot of the non-criminal behavior of students so that they end up missing out on their educational opportunities. Now, you served as a teacher for 34 years, so you're well aware of students and what makes for success or doesn't. Could you give me an overview of the history of education in the United States and particularly how it's dealt with minorities? The beginning of American public school education usually dates back to the Massachusetts Public School Law of 1647. In that law, the people of Massachusetts decided that any town of 50 families needed to have a teacher and any town of 100 families needed to have a grammar school. That is the beginning. It worked in fits and starts throughout the growth of our country and developed pretty well in the, in the New England colonies. The Kalamazoo case in the 1870s was a state Supreme Court case that set the precedent that taxes could be collected for public education, that it was a public good. It was the benefit to all of society to have children in school. And I think a third of the major cases is Brown v. Board in 1954, saying that you can have school for everybody. And you know, we have a, a long tradition here of trying to educate everybody. I always like to point out that in the first day of school, the principals stand on the schoolhouse steps and open the door to everybody. It doesn't matter uh, race, creed, color, sexual orientation, gender, if you can walk, talk, eat, whatever the physical disability is, you are all welcome in the great American public school system. And that's a point of pride, and we should remember that and continue that. And what about the actual access to schools for minorities? Have they been treated the same disadvantage? How has that worked? Well, for much of our history, it's been pretty brutal. The separation of schools based on race meant that poor schools, poverty, didn't have very many services, books, teachers, etc. And the Brown decision in 1954 was supposed to help solve that, and effectively did. It just took a long time to break those historical prejudices. Today, the number one indicator of success in school is the lack of poverty. If we factor out poverty, our students compete with students all over the world. 
So when we talk about school reform, I always think that the number one issue that we need to reform is poverty. Students who come to school happy, healthy, and well-fed do well, and that is the number one reform. And when you talk about schools being militarized and so on, that tends to be something that you see in what we would call poor schools or schools with a lot of poverty. And that is uh, poverty is equated with violence, and that's too bad. With poverty being the number one indicator of possible success in the school, it would seem that we'd be looking at poverty to see what's happening and predicting the future for the USA. There's a graphic that you use on your congressional campaign handout, which shows 2003-4 versus 2013-14 and what's happening with respect to poverty. What's your prediction about how things are going to go for schools in the United States? Well, here in Wisconsin, we're rapidly moving towards a time when we will have 50% of our public school population receiving either free or reduced lunches because their family's income is so low. That is not a good indicator. Schools can only do so much. As I said earlier, when you have a room full of healthy, happy, and well-fed students, teaching is much, much easier than those who have worked until the wee hours of the night or come to school and wonder where their next meal is going to be coming from. So I always think that the number one way to improve schools is to decrease the level of poverty. The militarization of our schools is frequently in the poorer schools. The equation of equating poverty to violence and then to punish the students who are unruly. I've taught in three different schools in my career. One very small rural school of of 120 students in grades 1 through 12 and then a a more urban school of 400 students in grades 7 through 12, and then a very urban school of almost 2,000 students in grades 9 through 12. The problems that I saw in all three places were about the same. The numbers, of course, increased. But the uh, people that, as I said earlier, healthy, happy, and well-fed, they do very well regardless of the size of the school and the amount of students. Myron Buckles joins us more or less weekly for History in Our Best Future, and you can find his contributions at the northernspiritradio.org website under that program name. But right now, we're going to talk to Monique Morris about her book, Push Out, dealing with the ways in which black girls are marginalized and driven out of schools and into various forms of detention and imprisonment and limitation, and ultimately held back from success in our society. Monique is co-founder of the National Black Women's Justice Institute, author of four books dealing with race and roles of women, in addition to numerous other papers and writings. She's labored for more than 20 years in the areas of education, civil rights, juvenile, and social justice. Her website is moniquewmorris.com, and she joins us now by phone from California. Monique, I'm really happy to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Thanks for having me on. You've been pretty busy with the book Push Out, Criminalization of Black Girls in Schools, but this is only the latest step in the books that you've written. You've got 20 years or more of experience with justice work. It looks to me like women have become more and more important in your work as you've gone along. Is that true or is that just my misperception? I think that may be a misperception. (laughs) Women and girls have always been at the center of my approach to engaging in conversations about equity and justice. 
the first book that I ever wrote was called Too Beautiful for Words, and it was a street novel that explored this issue of prostitution. And so at the center of that discussion, um, while it certainly included male characters in the book, was a discussion about a you know what we now understand to be a young girl who is commercially sexually exploited. Uh, at the time that I wrote the book, most people referred to young people or young women especially who were engaged in prostitution as prostitutes. But our body of work, and I like to think that I had something to do with this, <laughs> is leading us toward a better understanding of how to engage and approach that topic and to understand the commercial sexual exploitation. But following that one, I actually wrote with Kemba Smith her autobiography. And she was a woman who was sentenced to 24 and a half years in federal prison for being the girlfriend of a drug dealer. And her case was one that was used to amplify the problematic nature of the war on drugs. And so I worked with her on her project, which certainly centers her narrative and experiences with intimate partner violence, as well as uh, really engaging in a more profound centering of women as they were impacted by the war on drugs. And then my third project is Black Stats, which, as you suggest, is a more broad engagement of this work and certainly is a reflection of the research that I had been engaged in in several years that explored race, gender, and justice. But, you know, I, w I wouldn't say that women were and girls were, were never present. This is probably the most significant way in which I have centered girls. I wanted to work backwards with this project. Having spent so much time exploring issues of criminalization and incarceration, I wanted to step back and look at other institutions that are participating in this culture of criminalization and how it impacts girls from their earliest years and stages of learning. I want to give myself a caveat right away just because it's something that gets addressed in the book. When I'm dealing with a large range of ages of females, of girls and women, I tend to use the word females, not as a put down, but because I don't want to be calling a 12-year-old a woman because they shouldn't be treated that way. And a 17 could go either way, so I say females. But I noticed that some of the girls that you dealt with, I mean, they kind of reacted to female like as if calling them that was a put down. Yeah, they reacted to that largely because of the sort of contemporary way and, you know, colloquial way in which men and boys have been using female as a way to sort of lump together the experiences of women and girls and the tone with which they say it tends to be negative. So what you read in the book are girls, particularly girls in Chicago, whose narratives I include in the book, talking about being called a female dehumanizes them because it doesn't acknowledge that they are girls or young women and fully developing in that way. That by just saying females do X, Y, Z or females are behaving in a, in a certain way, they are relegated to this um, sort of, I don't want to say, it just doesn't acknowledge their full humanity. <laughs> and, and so, you know, one of the things that's important that was important for me in this project especially was to center the narratives of girls and to use their critiques and their observations as a starting point for our questioning and engagement around how they are responding to patriarchy, how they are responding to racial bias, and how they are ultimately navigating their own lived experiences. So by including that in this discussion, I really wanted to call attention to how girls and young women particularly those who are growing in urban spaces and who are feeling erased in much of the conversation, 
are picking up on the cues, the verbal and nonverbal cues that they basically interpret to undermine their value. And so um, I actually appreciate that you picked up on that <laughs> and that you uh, want to talk about that a little bit because it's an important point for them and it's an important point for me. In the you know, scholarly world, we definitely use female, male, and for those who are engaged in public discussions, you know, that is a way to simplify an engagement. But on issues like the one that I'm exploring here with Push Out, where there is a centering and an, an important way in which we need to deconstruct feminine identities along an age continuum and the ways in which there has been compression in some spaces and problematic interpretations in others, that it is important for girls to be acknowledged as girls and to be appropriately engaged according to their age, as opposed to them feeling that they are womanized or that they're in conditions that are otherwise inappropriate for them. So I think there's different answers depending on who you're talking to. What's an appropriate age and which to call a human female a woman as opposed to a girl? <laughs> I, figure, I think there's a landmine that I use, I'm afraid of walking on. Well, I go by what is the adult age. <laughs> Until that point, you could be a girl. You know, if you're an adolescent, then, you know, typically we switch to young woman. Throughout the book, I have been acknowledging that these are emerging women, but that they're not yet women, and that you know there's still a lot that they have to learn, and there are ways in which we as adults need to work with and engage them in their space, regardless of what adult-like conditions they may have experienced, <laughs> that they are still developing into their womanhood, their adulthood. For the most part, to me, all these girls who are under the age of 18 in this book I refer to as girls. And I do so very intentionally because as a mother and as a person who is engaged with girls and young women regularly, it's really important for us to give girls the opportunity for them to really grow in their space, to not you know, engage them too soon in having to take on the responsibilities of an adult so that they can learn and grow at an appropriate place to be given that freedom. You know, I think at the core of all of this is a discussion of freedom and what that really looks like. And for too many black girls in particular, they are not really given in the public domain an opportunity for them to be free children. They are placed in conditions and expected to behave as adults in spaces that other children may not necessarily be expected to behave in this way. And we see this play out certainly among children who are most at risk of contact with the criminal and juvenile legal systems. But it's really, for me, an important starting place for us to begin to say, okay, who are we talking about? We're talking about girls. She is not a child prostitute. She is a girl who has been commercially sexually exploited, right? These are not problematic women. These are girls who have been pushed out of school, right? I mean, this is how, language is important. How we approach these issues, it's, it's not about what language you're, you're using in terms of euphemizing an issue or sort of trying to skirt around core issues. I try to use language that actually reflects what I am seeing, right? And that captures what is happening to the best of my ability. And so when I'm talking about girls, that's what I'm talking about. And I'm forcing us in some ways in the book, when you read the language, to take ourselves out of what has been normed expressions around girls and young women 
and really try to center them from their own starting place. Can I also presume you wouldn't like to call them ladies, young ladies? I, that's a term I don't like, personally. Yeah, well, sometimes people want to be called young ladies. So I really just defer to the person and what they want to be called. I mean, you know, and as you know, having read this book, there are girls, young women, ladies. There, I mean, I try to move along the continuum. Um, there are cisgender and transgender girls whose narratives are included in this book. So it depends, I think, again, on how these young women and girls are interpreting their own experience. I do offer a critique of how the respectability politics around that term young lady <laughs> do impact, you know, how we might read behaviors and how we might police behaviors as a society. And I think that's what we should be discussing, you know, is really about what our expectations are and what's at the root of some of these phrases and this terminology in general, you know, and how we are ultimately trying to address these core issues of trauma and victimization and academic marginalization that place girls, disproportionately black girls, at risk of contact with the juvenile and criminal legal system. Sure. Monique, before we go on, I'm just wondering, you have two daughters. What are their ages at this point? I have a 14-year-old and a 12-year-old. Oh, good. You're getting into the thick of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's when my sisters and my stepmother ended up having real problems and major things. <laughs> so I, I actually have had more experience of uh, what criminal justice, juvenile detention experience through my sisters than perhaps most people because I come from a large family. There's lots of options for people to have problems. So, And alcoholism being rampant in my family and having lived in West Africa and having been right by the inner city in Milwaukee, all of these things have mean I've been a little bit, little bit closer to it. And actually, I, right now I live in a relatively lily white area of Wisconsin. It's got maybe 10%, you know, non-white folks here, but there's a residential facility. It's not juvenile detention exactly. It's something like that, that one of my best friends works at. So I get to hear all of the stories that he's dealing with in that facility where about 50% of people are of color. Anyway, with all of that, I'm filtering in all kinds of information from my own personal experience with all the valuable information you put in. And particularly, I, I liked hearing the words of the girls that you included in the book push out. And so that I think it really helps to hear on the ground what's going on. Before we go on, there's one thing I wanted to follow up on. Your your first novel, Too Beautiful for Words, I'm particularly interested in religious and spiritual outlooks and how they affect things. And it's kind of interesting in that book, the 17-year-old girl that you have there, she gets taken to the dark side by someone named Jesus, a smooth-talking pimp. Did you pick Jesus or maybe Jesus? I don't know. It's the same name. <laughs> it's the same name. Um, essentially, that book came from a hip-hop song that, I don't know if you're familiar with, you know, hip-hop music, but this group called The Coup had a song called Me and Jesus the Pimp and the 79 Granada last night. And immediately people respond to that through a religious lens, right? I mean, a pimp mm -hmm. named Jesus, sure. like, what is that? When I first heard the song, I thought it was brilliant because what he does is play out in the song through the male perspective this idea of an exploitative figure who comes in and manipulates, but he has a handicap. He has a physical disability. 
So he's not himself as dominant as he, one might seem. And so to me, the song was brilliant and I wanted to explore it largely because I felt that in hip hop music at the time, there was balance that was missing in terms of, you know, having conversations about liberation and justice and what had been at the time a real preoccupation and glorification of pimp culture. And I mean that not to say prostitution, I mean pimp culture, <laughs> right? Mm, so the sure. emphasis on pimping as something positive, you know, there was Pimp My Ride on TV. So there was this, there was this right. way in which there was just a, a glorification of the presentation of the pimp identity that I felt needed to be further explored and that there needed to be an introduction, interjection, something that really does uh, allow for us to think about how this is impacting the experiences of women and girls. The book itself does explore this person's identity, this person who is named Jesus Jesus, who does engage in a deeply problematic relationship with the 17-year-old and who produced together a child who is also trying to reconcile his lived experiences alongside a Black Panther from Oakland. The book is set in Oakland. And it's been interesting to me over time how Certainly those who are Christian take offense. Some have taken offense to the pimp being named Jesus, and I fully expected that. And what I've often found interesting and where I have tried to have conversations with folks about that is trying to get them to understand that this is the name of an individual who presented himself as her savior. That is something that I very explicitly deal with in the book. What has been most problematic for me, even you know, as a reader and as the author of that book, is that there has been a way in which people respond to the, his name rather than the truth behind this relationship and the ways in which so many girls and young women are seeking salvation from individuals who are exploiters and who manipulate their faith and who manipulate their trust in order to get them to produce what, you know, these individuals want them to produce, which is money. In my conversations with Boots, who's the lead MC for the hip-hop group that I was telling you about, the coup, right. Boots, when I talked to him about it, he said, yeah, most people think this song is about religion, and it's not. This song is about capitalism, <laughs> right? <laughs> which instantly made me say, oh my gosh, I get it, I get it completely. And my mentor you know, who passed on a couple of years ago was Manning Marable, who is a democratic socialist and who talked a lot about capitalism. He was the author of How Capitalism Underdeveloped Black America and, you know, has largely engaged in conversations about that. And when I talked to Boots, um, he told me that that book was the inspiration actually for the song and that many of the complex ways in which Black capitalism, quote-unquote, has interacted with and had its relationship with capitalism in general in this country, given the persistent discrimination and marginalization that occurs economically, that that was essentially what he wanted to demonstrate in a microcosmic, you know, sort of structure and tale of this man and this boy. So I took that and ran with it and engaged in this full family narrative about this way in which our communities wrestle with what constitutes freedom, how we use uh, structures of oppression to not fully engage in a dismantling of that oppression, but in many ways reinforcing the oppression. And I play with faith a little bit in that book because of the ways in which I have seen and you know, certainly worked with young women 
who do apply a similar level of trust in an individual that they would in their faith savior and or a person that they had accepted into their life. And so it was important for me to maintain the authenticity and integrity of the song as it was becoming my novel to hold on to that idea and to really explore it. Well, good for you for doing that. I haven't heard the song, unfortunately. But let's get back now to Push Out, the criminalization of black girls in school. And one thing I note from the start and through the end, school is very important to you personally. I think that more and more people are thinking, who wants to go to college and run up forty, fifty, sixty, a hundred thousand dollars worth of debt? There's maybe good reasons for avoiding that path at this point, but it's no question that for so many of us, it's absolutely the path to a good life. Could you talk about that in terms of both white culture and black culture, uh, how that's been valued, is valued, and is or isn't possible? I don't know if I I feel I have enough information to discuss it in the context of what you labeled as white culture, but I think that it's important for us to understand that black women who have some high school education and no diploma earn significantly less than those with a master's degree and even those with a bachelor's degree. And so when I talk about education, not only do I situate this conversation in a context of understanding the historical value of education as playing a liberative role among women and people of color, but also understanding that just in our society today, the more education you have, the more earning potential you typically have. You know, obviously there are exceptions, but when you look at the data, that's what you find. And that's something that I share in one of the appendices that really can map out, you know, really how much black women are earning when they have a little bit of education versus what they earn when they have more education. And that's what it boils down to in many ways, you know, is this question of how much people are earning and how education can get them to that role. We just spent, you know, a couple of minutes talking about Too Beautiful for Words, and really it's not disconnected to this book because while publicly the statement is that I started researching this book about four years ago, The truth is that I think in many ways, when I started doing the promotion for Too Beautiful for Words and walking in and out of detention facilities and talking to girls about their experiences and coming across very young girls who were being commercially sexually exploited and not in school and who had very deeply problematic relationships with school, that that's really when I started writing Push Out. And that's really when I wanted to have this conversation about what was drawing girls out, why they were responding the way that they were to these structures of oppression and how we could get them back in school so that they can fulfill their positive promise and opportunity. You know, historically, education has been a critical tool to advance and to mitigate many of the negative structures of oppression that individuals have to engage, particularly those who are black and female and living in conditions of poverty, right? These, and, and for some, including those in the, you know, whose narratives I include in the book, to further complicate matters who may have non-conforming gender identities and or a physical disability, right? Or a learning mental disability. And so there are ways in which we need to have these conversations about earning potential and about education. But the other critical piece here is, aside from my own 
elevation of education as an important factor and the historical context of education for black women and girls is that education in the life of a girl is a critical protective factor against contact with the criminal and juvenile legal system. Girls with an education are less likely than girls without an education to be in contact with the juvenile and criminal legal system. Ultimately, this book is about combating the criminalization that has become so pervasive in our society. And so if we're going to really look at how to interrupt these cycles of incarceration, if we're going to really look at what is fueling much of the addiction and responses to poverty and oppression that we're seeing in so many communities, then we have to take a step back and and look at how education might be contributing or how our structures of education and, and learning spaces might be contributing to this climate. How discipline has become the dominant discussion about schooling as opposed to learning. How our emphasis on tests have removed an opportunity for us to really engage with young people using their whole selves or approaching them as whole beings as opposed to just bodies in a classroom to count and to take tests? How are we responding to acts of critical thinking when they are coming from the body, mind, and mouth of a black girl as opposed to other children? And these are the questions that I really center here because I know that education is a critical protective factor against contact with the juvenile and criminal legal system. And I know that the girls who are in the system are girls who have had deeply problematic relationships with schools. And to me, this is an issue that has been underdeveloped in our public narrative, and that's why I center it in Push Out. Folks, Monique W. Morris is the author of Push Out, the Criminalization of Black Girls in School. She's my guest here today for Spirit in Action, a Northern Spirit Radio production on the web, of course, at northernspiritradio.org. With 11 years of our programs for free listening and download, including info about and links to our guests, like a link to moniquewmorris.com, where you can find out more about Monique, Push Out, and her other three books, and much more. There's a place on NordenSpiritRadio.org to post comments and do your part to make our discussion two-way. Do post when you visit. There's also a donate button, and your donations are the only funding for this full-time work. Even more important than providing me a living wage is to support your local community radio station, often entirely run and staffed by volunteers. The alternative ideas and music of community radio are absolutely crucial in our country, so start by supporting them. Today's Spirit in Action guest is Monique W. Morris, whose doctorate is in education and which she uses as both an author and a social justice scholar. I note, Monique, that in Push Out, you're talking about the educational experience from a number of points of view. One comparison is of the black, white, and other races' experience with schools. Another lens to look through is experience of black girls versus white girls with school and the possible differences that may come from cultural norms. I've had one set of experience as a white male, and it was eye-opening to think that possibly there could be a very different reaction to a black girl talking to a teacher, for example, from her norms. The white norm is, I think, for a girl to be very deferential with the teacher And you talk of the possibility that black girls might not be on that same track. Could you talk about how a black girl's interaction might be different from those of the dominant culture? You know, I think the dominant culture to equate femininity with something docile and with something subservient 
is commonplace across culture. And yet there is a counter narrative that has emerged and that has long been there for black girls and black women who have always had to work alongside their male counterparts, who have always had to speak up on behalf of those who are experiencing injustice and who have long been at the forefront of America's in deep interrogation of how it is going to uh, engage in these core questions of equality and justice, right? These, these core values that we uphold but don't necessarily practice <laughs> uniformly. And so what I talk about in the book and what I think is at the center of your question is really this way in which black women and girls have a tradition of speaking up and speaking out against something that they or conditions that they feel are oppressive. I start much of this narrative by talking about the concept of double consciousness, which was articulated and and coined by W.E.B. Du Bois in The Souls of Black Folks in 1903, when he starts talking about this two-ness, this this identity of black people that constantly engages them in this unreconciled striving around being both black and American. And what I say is for black women, there has been a third layer around gender that is always there. And this is the foundation of much of the black feminist scholarship that has emerged in this space to help us understand and deconstruct black femininity, the works of Bell Hooks, Audre Lorde. I mean, we can go back to the Sojourner Truth with Ain't I a Woman, right? That really allows for us to think through it, but certainly to add layer and, and complexity, the work of Angela Davis and, and uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, who um, is a legal scholar who coined the term intersectionality most recently. And so I think it's important for us to think through that when we explore these questions of identity and when we start to really look at how black women's behaviors and ways of engaging have long been associated with standing up against oppression, that's when we start to really understand what we're seeing when we see girls speak up and speak out. What I talk about in Push Out and with respect to this issue of Push Out, I mean, first I want to just say that Push Out is a deliberate way in which many advocates have been reframing this question of dropout in schools. We typically have talked about children who don't complete school as dropouts. And in my experience, children don't just wake up and say, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm not going to school. There tend to be a series of factors in a child's life that prevent them from engaging in school. And what we have seen over the past couple of decades, really, is this emergence of behaviors and policies and practices in schools that not just unintentionally deter children from coming to school, but that actually remove them from school for behaviors and offenses or infractions that have typically been managed and handled in school. That is really what I'm talking about. And and it, and it interacts with these questions of feminine identity and some of the expectations that are at play in how young people are responding to adults in their lives and how they're learning. Typically, you know, when we look at the discipline data, we see that black girls are disproportionately overrepresented along the continuum. You know, from the 2011-12 data that were released by the U.S. Department of Education, black girls were the only group of girls who are disproportionately impacted in all nine discipline categories. The new data show um, in the first look and snapshot, the data are still being culled from 2013 and 14, but they still demonstrate a presence of disparity among girls 
where black girls are disproportionately represented even when other girls are not in along these discipline categories and it begins as early as preschool. And so what we see are black girls disproportionately impacted by school discipline policies and practices that render them vulnerable to being placed in handcuffs or being arrested on campus for things like having a tantrum or cursing at a teacher or taking candy from a teacher's table. And while these activities are not acceptable and certainly should be responded to and corrected, we don't need to call in police to place these girls in handcuffs. <laughs> right. We don't need to take them and place them under the stairs or use corporal punishment to respond and correct the behavior. And that is what I'm critiquing, and that is what I am saying. There has been this way in which, historically, this legacy of slavery and segregated opportunity has socialized for us that discipline and punishment are the appropriate responses to, quote-unquote, bad behavior among black girls, or black girls who behave in ways or rebel against normative ideas of what we constitute as appropriate feminine behavior. And that is what I am saying that we need to correct. Not that we, you know, need to let kids just run rampant in classrooms. You know, as an educator, I certainly don't, I'm not advocating for that. (laughs) But what I am saying is that there are different ways that we could be responding to these girls that recognizes what their lived experiences are, how they are trying to navigate the structures of oppression in their lives and in their communities, and that as educators and as a broader community of people, we need to stop being so judgmental and quick to punish black girls for things that we are not quick to negatively respond to and punish among other girls that there's a basic differential treatment, a basic differential enforcement of policies and practices that is producing a greater number of black girls who are at risk of being in contact with the criminal and juvenile legal system. And that is a problem. It's a massive problem. Again, the layers of the problems that I see include racial issues, also gender issues, and and these factors interact with one another. You mentioned yourself in the book that 79% of juvenile detention cases are for boys and 21% for girls, and some people take this as a reason to put all of our resources toward the big problem, boys and their struggle with schools and criminalization of their roles. But I think there's a relevant conversation that I was witness to back 40 years ago, 1976 it was, my last year in college and during Black History Month, I was at a presentation held at the Black Students Union. They had a film basically saying that racial discrimination against blacks is so bad that we have to prioritize dealing with that. And a woman there, one of my friends, Darlene, said, what about the role of black women struggling not only because we're black, but disadvantaged because we're women? Even if the race issues were resolved, we'd still be suffering for being women. The guy leading the discussion said something to the fact, sure, sure, sister, we'll have to take a good look at that. But first, we all have to work to get rid of the racism, and then we can work on women's issues. And Darlene wasn't having any of that. Well, that's an old, old and very problematic framework. That's actually what prompted, in many ways, my deep dive into this work is that for several years, much of how we have talked about what is commonly referred to as the school to prison pipeline, you know, has been masculinized and has been really developed from the experiences of boys and men of color, particularly black men and boys 
because of a significant investment in their well-being and the framing of that investment as the racial justice work that needs to be done. You know, many of us for years have been, you know, the lone voices in rooms saying, but what about the women? But what about the girls? But what about the women? But what about the girls? You know, my work and in this book, especially really at the intersections, at no time, you know, do these girls ever stop being black. <laughs> at no time do these you know, black individuals stop being girls. And so there is, you know, an, an important way in which we need to step back and examine our own framework around racial justice work to understand that this is about how we have candid discussions about sexism and patriarchy in our communities, in our societies, in our institutions, to really uplift that justice work and freedom work is not just about what's happening to men and boys. You know, for at least two years, I've been publicly saying, you know, remember that our children are sharing institutions and homes and experiences. They are sharing surveillance. They are sharing this growing emphasis on discipline. And by only focusing on one part of this population impacted by this issue, you're never going to impact the issue at, at you know, in general. That girls are only 21% of the population in detention shouldn't mean that those girls then are left to rot. I don't believe in throwaway children. So if we are going to construct adequate responses to the problematic behaviors that are leading people into contact with the juvenile legal system or that are leading to their being in conditions that are harmful to their overall well-being, then we have to talk about the full population and we have to talk about the ways in which different populations are impacted in different ways. Girls have always been involved in the justice system at rates that are lower than boys. Men, typically are incarcerated at levels greater than women. That's a trend that we have seen for years and years and years. That doesn't mean that the women and girls who are in contact with the justice system need not be engaged in conversations about how we develop whole beings and whole communities. And I mean that not just to suggest that they're important if they have birthed a male or if they're partnered with a male, right? I mean that they are worthy of our investment just because. And that is at the center of my own work and practice. You know, I, I wrote a piece about sacred inquiry and girls who are in contact with the juvenile legal system as a book chapter and as, you know, an academic article last year. And it was really important for me to center as much as we can conversations about women and girls in this space because they are in this space. <laughs> and how we respond to them has to be appropriate. It has to be gender-informed and responsive. It has to be culturally competent. And it needs to fully understand that if we are seeking to transform structures, we have to see everyone who is impacted by the structures. Absolutely. I tried research, doing some of my own research about what the percentages of dropout, pushout are amongst various races and genders. And it does look to me like black girls are hanging in there somehow a little bit better than black boys and white girls are hanging in there better than white boys. Exactly. Do you have some sense of why that is? I mean, considering the, the patriarchal structures we have in our country, why are the girls somehow hanging in there better than the boys? So it's interesting because, again, I try to stay away from comparisons between male and female in conversations about race because the racial disparities are greater when you isolate by gender, which means when you talk about what's happening among boys, you can see the racial disparities emerge. And when you talk about what's happening among 
girls, you see the racial disparities emerge in many cases at greater to a greater extent than you do among boys. Now, your question about like why girls overall are seem to be doing better in school or at least finishing school. And I actually stay away from the term doing better in school because that that is a complicated, right, that's a complicated piece. The phrase I used was hanging in there better. Yeah, hanging in there. That's right. That's right. The thing about that is, you know, girls in general are very resilient. They are able to respond and bounce back and navigate structures and systems and follow rules in ways that typically are favorably responded to by institutions. Now, my critique of that is, you know, while we see completion rates among boys and girls being different where girls are completing school at, to a greater level than many boys, there are other ways in which we need to construct safety and completion that I think have long been ignored in this conversation. So, you know, even as we talk about girls finishing school, we still need to also talk then about girls who are still at risk of sexual victimization while they're in school, right? We still need to talk about whether they feel safe in school and what issues that they have to deal with in order to complete school. But girls are a resilient group. They are working with faculty and others who do want to see them succeed. That said, again, the completion rate for black girls and Latinas is lower than it is for white girls and Asian girls as a conglomerate. You know, again, recognizing the, I want to just pause and, and recognize that there are ethnic differences among the Asian group, API group, that are often masked when we present them as a full group. So Southeast Asian girls and Pacific Islander girls do often experience many of the same conditions as you know, black and Latina girls when we talk about schools and we talk about structures of oppression and we talk about lots of other identity issues that impact their ability to complete school and to perform well. But, you know, it's really important, I would say, for us to think about, to, to isolate the conversation and figure out how girls are navigating their structures of oppression and what is there to keep them in school versus how boys are still disproportionately experiencing school pushout. This book and my work is not about denying the very real fact that boys are disproportionately experiencing school pushout, discipline, criminalization. They absolutely are, boys of color, especially black boys. And it's really important for us to talk about that. At the same time, what I'm doing is saying we cannot talk about that to the exclusion of the girls. Absolutely. So that's, you know, to me is the real issue here is that our children are impacted by this dominant and growing culture of punishment and not leaving much room for us to explore how to appropriately engage, what are some of the innovations that are happening. You know, many schools are not kicking kids out or turning them away for arriving in the wrong clothes, quote-unquote, or, you know, for speaking up when they have a disagreement. And they have processes in place that allow for the adults in the school to work with and co-construct safety with children. But many schools do not, and those schools tend to be the schools in high-poverty areas. Those schools tend to be in economically isolated and racially isolated areas. And so that is really a fundamental inequity that impacts our responses to children then produce a greater risk of criminalization. I wanted to spend time really thinking about how this policing of girls of color, black girls in particular, and how these policies and practices as a structure are impacting girls, 
given that there is a tremendous body of work that explores the impact on boys. And folks, the person we're speaking with is Monique Morris. Her new book, Push Out the Criminalization of Black Girls in School. And you just mentioned, Monique, one of the issues brought up and discussed in the book that I think is very interesting that has to do with the intersection of dress codes and the hypersexualization of black girls. You share in the book some of the reactions of these girls against dress codes. And I experienced a conflict of goals because the dress codes can decrease the likelihood of their being hypersexualized. It seems like every direction we might turn is fraught with objections, each with some validity, but which might be necessary in working toward a solution. Do you have a sense of how we deal with that kind of tension? We do that by having conversations about sexism and patriarchy and teaching all children that girls especially are not sex objects, not by punishing or criminalizing girls for showing up in clothes (laughs) that adults feel are too provocative. You know, one of the things that I hope is clear from the book and that I think is deserving of our greater interrogation is this idea that we need to co-construct what safety is. The dress codes were implemented in many ways to address this question of safety, both in terms of girls not being sexualized by most often the boys in their school, but also to try to reduce the violence and to reduce the threat of children being robbed or those who have more expensive clothing being targets of those who may use violence to get those things from them. I do think that our ability to manage the victimization and assaults that happen in schools is really ultimately not about whether a girl is showing up in a tank top or short shorts. (laughs) And especially given that black girls are disproportionately experiencing, you know, being told to go home or turned around from school and sent away from school because not necessarily of what they have on, but because of how it looks on their bodies, which is really more of a policing of their bodies than it is of implementing the dress code. These are the narratives that I center in this book because anecdotally, this has been happening across the country. I can't wait to see new research that's emerging out of Texas that really does begin to add rigor to the anecdotes and put the scholarship in on this issue because it has been under-theorized, really, in our discussions about how we promote safety, how we implement dress codes, and how that is impacting girls of color in particular, and especially black girls. Where there are dress codes that regulate against natural black girl hairstyles like afros or locks or braids, you know, those just need to go, <laughs> in my opinion. Those right. just need to go. But, and then there are the set of, you know, policies about particular dress codes. Don't wear purple if the dress code is pink or if you're supposed to wear a belt, you know, come with a belt as opposed to not having one or your shoes have a swoosh on them when they shouldn't. All of those kinds of things to me are a distraction from what we should be focusing on, which is the learning taking place in schools. I do believe in order to move forward, though, that there can be, again, a co-construction of what is appropriate dress with young people and to engage them in this process of defining and articulating the appropriate continuum of responses that could happen in the event that someone arrives in school in a attire that is not deemed as appropriate. I have seen in many different spaces where how a child shows up to school is really not a factor, not an issue at all. 
and that young people are taught, you know, sort of appropriate dress for appropriate situations through special events like career days or, you know, other opportunities for them during their spirit days to really explore what might be appropriate dress for specific situations. Other than that, really what we're doing is reinforcing social norms and respectability politics that really don't have anything to do with whether a child is learning how to read and construct sentences and learn mathematic equations. It's really important for us as adults to think about how these policies have been developed and to ensure that we are not participating in a reinforcement of the oppression of our young people and their gender expression and their gender identity even if we don't intend to do it, if, you know, we, we have to look at both the intentional and unintentional ways in which these policies and practices are, are creating harm. This is, again, something that has been underexplored, but most importantly for me is that we should never, ever, ever punish a girl or suggest that she is a distraction because of her clothing if we have not had conversations with all children about, you know, really how to construct safety and engage with young people around not objectifying women's bodies. I'll put it this way. In many of these institutions, boys walk around with shirts off, tank tops, (laughs) are able to, you know, engage when they're hot in the removal of their clothing, and girls are not. And that is a deeply problematic double standard that girls will articulate every day and that we as adults really need to examine when we're implementing policies that lead young people to believe that that is appropriate and that really lead to a differential experience around push-out for girls of color. You know, folks, we've only scratched the surface of Monique Morris and her book, Push Out the Criminalization of Black Girls in Schools. Status offenses, there's a lot more to talk about it. Trafficking, there's incredible mark. And actually, Monique, one of my favorite parts of the book was the Q&A section you have in one of the appendices. There's so many good things that you can learn if you get Monique Morris's book. Her website, moniquewmorris.me or .com, they'll both get you there. There's so much more that we could talk about, Monique, and I wish we had the time, but I know you've got to go on to other people who need to interview you, too. Thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you so much. Folks, that link is on northernspiritradio.org. Follow it to learn more, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.